Shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pulse of Israel here in our eternal and ancestral homeland, the land of Israel, in our eternal, beautiful, biblical, and indivisible capital, Jerusalem, since King David's time. Today, I want to introduce you to a, an old friend and a former congressman, Dennis Ross. Shalom, Dennis. Thank you. It's good to be here. Very good to be here. Back in here. That's right. I've had the opportunity of uh, hosting you on, on, on trips Several times, here, yes. here in Israel and of seeing you in, uh, in Washington in your office a number of years ago when you were still in Washington. And uh, I know you're flying out tonight, and I wanted to take advantage, and I'm so glad you had the time to be able to have a nice little schmooze with you. Uh, it could be about anything, but I specifically wanted to talk to you about the deep state, this concept of the deep state. Is it real? Is it, is, it, is it a boogeyman? If it is real, what is it? What's going on? And uh, here we're having the angle of you're from Washington, or, right. as, or as in my clip, and I'll show the clip, the clip of Jim Jordan saying, the swamp. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Good morning, everyone. This is Avi Ablon. I am not in the ancestral and eternal homeland of the Jewish people, but I am, <laughs> I am in the capital of... Uh, in the swamp. <laughs> um, and here I'm in Jerusalem and pretty connected with the, with the political, social reality of Israel. So you bring the American reality, I'm bringing the Israeli reality, and just hashing this out. Like, is this something real? Is this a, is this a boogeyman? And I just want to give context from Israel, because like uh, yesterday when we were, were talking through about this, I gave you some examples just to give context to everyone. Just in yesterday's news here in Israel, um, we're, we're dealing with the budget here in Israel, the budget, the, the votes on the budget. And the finance minister happens to be a proud Jewish uh, proponent, supporter of Judea and Samaria, understanding that all laws in Israel should be applied to all Israelis equally, regardless of where they live, obviously, including Judea and Samaria, because for those of you who do not know, there it's, it's not exactly the way that goes, but that's for a different video. And him as finance, finance minister in charge of the budget told his staff, all right, you're writing all this up so that everything is, applies everywhere, yep. right? And uh, the bill was brought up for a vote or a discussion in the cabinet uh, on Sunday, I think, so Sunday's news, and one person there in the outside who was looking over the, ca over, over the budget details saw that it was actually written in that it would not apply to Judea and Samaria. And he immediately, as it was being discussed, not to be voted on, like started making frantic phone calls to the cabinet minister saying, guys, you can't, you can't approve this yet because they did not follow the minister's directive. And that's exactly the point, that even though the minister had a clear directive of policy, well, the wonks, let's sort of call them, or the career bureaucrats yes. in the office ensured that they did not, in the fine print that no one paid attention to, except for this one guy who caught it, they put forward their own agenda, Absolutely. their own policy, which goes against 100% against the directives they received from their boss. So that's just one example of so many dealing with a perspective of the understanding of what a deep state is. So before giving more examples, what is your experience <laughs> from, from, from D.C. and American politics in terms of Deep state. state. Uh, and it, my perspective, you started out saying, well, it, this is back when I first elected to Congress, 
you know, it doesn't really exist. We're here. We're doing the good good work of the people, and that's what our administrative agencies are. You as the also, elected officials. Yes, you know, and they're, they're there to complement what we do. Uh, what I learned, and I learned through several experiences, uh, is that the uh, regulatory agency, the administrative agencies, do not care about Congress, do not care about what we do. In fact, the laws that we pass, the more vague they are, the more empowered they are to do their regulatory rules, interpreting it as they see fit. You look at the Code of Federal Regulation, it is ten times larger than the United States statutory code. It is amazing. And we, as members of Congress, we have ceded that authority to these administrative agencies. Now, case in point that really became compelling was just after 9-11. After 9-11, we were you know, asleep at the switch. We could have prevented so many things. We just didn't do the right investigations. We didn't do the right discovery. So we passed the Patriot Act. Patriot Act is passed uh, almost without discussion, without debate, without review. Uh, and and your members, of, I wasn't there for the Patriot Act, but members of Congress, members of the Senate were told, you know, if you vote against this, you could very well be responsible for the next attack on the United States. And Nobody you're unpatriotic. Them. And you're unpatriotic. I mean, the name in itself says, you know, Patriot Act. Well, fast forward, we gave, Congress empowered the Department of Justice with so much authority, investigative authority, that dis, d, 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 declines due process for the average citizen. Now, and we're just going to use this in foreign uh, investigations. We're not going to use it domestically. So I'm in Congress, and in 2013, we learned that there was a FISA, a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, process to obtain metadata, all metadata used by Verizon cellular customers. Now, in getting a FISA warrant for production of documents, the the person requesting this in an affidavit, a sworn statement, has to say, I have reason to believe that this is necessary in order to prevent a terrorist attack or a terrorist, terrorist occurrence. And I thought about this and I said, wait a second, my 80-year-old mother-in-law has a Verizon phone. Why would you want her data? Because I'm pretty much sure that she is not a terrorist or has any terrorist ties. So we made a big stink about this and then and, and it became, you know, more and more uh, known to people. So I went down to the SCIF in the intelligence department and I said, look, I want to see the warrant. I want to see the, the, the request for production of documents. I want to see the affidavit. I want to know who signed it. My staff, my staff, the intelligence department, the intelligence committee staff said you can't see it. I said, excuse me? I am a member of Congress. I am a board of director of the United States government. I am entitled with security clearance to see all that is necessary about me. They wouldn't let me do it. I went to the speaker's office. Speaker said, "Sorry, we're not going to we're not going to let you." This was back when John Boehner was speaker. And I made a big stink about this because here on I am. What claim? On what legal authority were you? They just kept pawning me off, and, and 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 every avenue that I would have to go down was like, "No, we we can't do it. No, we can't do it." Now, fast forward to today, the Durham report comes out and says, "Wait a second, there have been hundreds of these warrants issued." Fraudulently, what happens is the person has to assert in what's called an ex parte uh, proceeding, meaning there's only one party. The party being investigated is unaware. There's no notice. There's, there's, there's nobody even saying to the judge, I'm not so sure this affidavit is correct. So it's the judge, it's the Department of Justice representative who says, judge, i got to have it because this is what I did. You say this under oath. Yes, I do. Okay, here's your warrant. And that starts the investigation. After January 6th, which was a debacle in American history, 
but it, the, the, the Department of Justice utilized, according to the Durham report, the power under the Patriot Act to investigate these people, American citizens. Yes, I now believe there is a deep state in the United States. And having experienced it firsthand and seeing where we are today, that career politicians still don't have the authority they should have because we've ceded it to the regulatory agencies and the career civil servants. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the Patriot Act as a result of 9-11. Because again, I was in New York City yeah. working midtown Manhattan on 9-11. Mm. Um, so I experienced that, and I experienced the, the, the feeling of the American people. And again, as an Israeli, I'm like, whoa, now the American people are going to wake up and realize what this, ter this global terror monster is all about and, and fight it properly, etc., etc., etc. Obviously, I've been extremely disappointed since. Um, but the point I wanted to bring up that you, that you raised, the Patriot Act, and if I'm not mistaken, was almost immediate. Yes. After 9-11. Yes, very immediate. It's not a short bill. No, we, we reconsidered it's... it when I was in Congress, and we had a lot of objections. It's the one thing where the Libertarians and the ACLU get together and fight against it. And even Jim Sensenbrenner, who served with me, who's now retired also from Wisconsin, who was the author of the Patriot Act in 2001, voted against the, the reforms that we did in 2015, I think it was. Wow. But, the, but the, it, I, I, I'm a skeptic at heart. And especially when it comes to government. All right, I've just and we should be now, and that's unfortunate. But what's more unfortunate is not only have we become skeptics of government, we've become, in the United States, we've become apathetic towards government, which means we've just totally ignored what's going to happen. We have more people that would rather protest than vote and feel as though they can effectuate change through protesting. You know, the uniqueness of the American form of government is that it requires individual participation. Right. Not necessarily running for office, but being active in your communities. Right. And we're not promoting that. We're not recognizing that. It's one of the reasons I left Congress, is to be in that arena to try to start to change the culture of self-involvement, civility, civil discourse, and personal responsibility. Right, because that, does, that doesn't happen at that, at that leadership and it may not, it, But it's, if we don't attempt it, I, look, I looked under the hood of the United States Congress, and I saw what was happening, and it was very disappointing to me. We have some good people up there. We, have a, we, we as a, a nation have endured much, not near as much as the uh, Israeli people have in, in, the, in, in the Jews and in, throughout the world. But yet we can overcome these by the process that was... Uh, put together by our founding fathers, and right. that's our history. Right. Oh, wait, so, but going back to the Patriot Act, so again, as the skeptic in me, at the time, obviously, I didn't think about this when I, when I like everyone else, I'm like, the Patriot Act, yes, it's necessary, yes, it's good, yeah, blah, 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 yeah. right, and again, I experienced the TSA, I remember oh, yeah. what flying was in, a, in U.S. airports pre-9-11, and then immediately after 9-11, it was a difference of night and day. You go in and out of an airport, that forget about that. Then it's already two whatever, two, three hour waits and security checks and, 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 and questioning, whatever. But but the skeptic in me years later all of a sudden was starting to think, wait a second, how in the world was this Patriot Act written and ready to be voted on so soon after nine eleven? So again the skeptic in me says, wait a second. It's it looks to me it was potentially prepared already. Yeah, oh yeah. And then waiting for the right occasion, boom, now we're going to push it. Which to me, and I also know this from other things, especially here in Israel, like there's the agenda of the career 
government officials pushing whatever agenda, and little by little, it's, it's all ready. And then when something happens, like policy, let's push this policy, and it's it's already there, oh, ready yeah. to push. But so to so the people, it's like, oh my God, thank God we have a solution. Not realizing what we're being sold to as a solution happens to be. Uh, uh, sold to us as a solution, but with a deeper, more sinister agenda of that's that's society changing. Oh yeah, I mean, I was trusting. I voted for the reforms of the Patriot Act, and I look back and I probably think that that might not have been the right thing to do. Yeah, there are some good people in the career uh, employment of the United States government, but you look at the growth of the employment of the United States government, and it has become and unions, of course, and you know public uh, public sector unions have perpetuated themselves and helped grow uh, more and more people be able to, to to make it more difficult to lose your job through through a, through a process, and you know again from a political standpoint. Members of Congress are not as empowered as they once were, and it's their own fault. We have seated, so we do have what's called the Congressional Review Act, which allows us. When we did this when Trump became president, we passed these laws that said we're overturning regulatory rules that were done in the Obama administration. And we had enough members. Of course, we had a majority in the House, we had a majority in the Senate, and the, and, and President Trump signed those and and rescinded right. certain regulatory rules. Right. The the ultimate say so is up to the president because they can veto these things. Now, Congress has recently passed some Congressional Review Act, a one Congressional Review Act uh, process, but it was vetoed by uh, President Biden. American people need to wake up and see that we've got so much authority that we have given to these agencies, to people that are career, that aren't elected, that aren't necessarily accountable, and are usually nameless. And they're the ones deciding what the quality of water you're going to want to have, where your roads are going to go, who's going to do your banking. For example, when I was on the Financial Services Committee, we had uh, what was called Operation Choke Point. Operation Choke Point was by the Federal Reserve and the SEC, and they would go into a bank and say, look, we don't want you doing any business with uh, gun stores. We don't want you doing any business with um, uh, tobacco stores, any adults, uh, uh, bookstores, uh, because if you do, uh, you know, that's a reputational risk, and we might have to shut you down. So we were getting, pawn shops were even on the list. We were getting constituents who had pawn shops who says, I can't find a bank that will do business with me because they said that it's against, it's against. And we go to the, uh, we go to the Fed, we go to the SEC, uh, and they say, well, you know, they're carrying a little bit too far. But it was a regulatory control over commerce. And, and we're seeing that, too, still today, you know, in, in, in environmental and sustainability, in, in, in dictating what type of investments can be made. The, the ESG, ESG yes. it's totally overtaking the yes. business world. It is. To, it the, is. to the detriment of many businesses. Not even in, in, in a, it doesn't even make sense financially, economically. Forget about, forget about the, the whole climate thing it doesn't even solve. Yes, and, and this is bypassing Congress. Bypassing Everything, Congress. They're, they're realizing now that through the executive action of the executive orders, which do not survive the president, but can be challenged, and usually are all challenged in court, become law, even though it's not supposed to be new law, uh, they most most cases are, stay that way until they're beaten in or re re rescinded by the courts, or a new president comes over and rescinds it themselves. I mean, Congress has little, we're not able to do a lot of things anymore. Wow. Which is very unfortunate. Look at it this way. When I was in Congress, 2010, I get elected, repeal and replace Obamacare. In eight years, we tried to repeal it 60 times. We only tried to replace it once and failed miserably by one vote. 
You see, it, it, we are not immigration. What have we done in immigration? Nothing. Nothing. And so what does that do? And People, even the wall was fought at every twist yes, and turn and yes. budgetary. Da, 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 da. But the regulatory environment is what's controlling the United States of America right now. Right. And, 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 I, and I would say this when I was a member of Congress, especially in my campaigns, that the silent killer of the American Republic is the regulatory process, which translates into career politicians, which means there might be a deep state if their agenda is different from those that are elected with another agenda. Yeah. Now, this touches upon what you're saying, and go even deeper with a few more examples. Again, recent examples from Israel. Just yesterday, the economic minister okay, announced that he has a top manager in his ministry who is not enforcing the policies that he wants. Right. Hence, he, wa he, he publicly stated... He wants her to resign, and if he doesn't resign, he will follow her. He will fire her. Guess what? The attorney general of the Israeli government said <laughs> publicly, "It is forbidden for you to, to fire, fire her. her." Right? And he goes, "I can't work with her." Right? We, I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to have my job. In order to have my job, I need people that who I can work, work with. with right? <laughs> Pretty basic ABC of, of employment. Right? Right. But no. The, the justice system, and in this case, the face of the justice system is the attorney general, says, no, it's forbidden. It has to go to a committee, the, a, a committee of, of how senior positions of government positions are filled, and an argument has to be yeah. made why it is, it is a, a, a reasonable for her to be fired, and the committee has to decide. You, the minister, her boss, your, it's your policy you want to fulfill that this person has to, you have no say, number one. And number two also, so recently, and I spoke about this in the, in the past few weeks, is the Attorney General forbid the Prime Minister from saying anything publicly about the judicial reform issue. Why? Because he has a conflict of interest because there are cases against him in yes. the court system. So here you have a situation amazing, where though. the Prime Minister is forbidden... From publicly by, commenting on from, it. From ever, even, and it's the most divisive issue of, of, of yes, all society. Is. And he had to shut up. He wasn't able to say anything. Again, if you ask me my, my advice, and again, who's, this is little Aviablo, the only way to beat the deep state is to finally put the deep state in its, in its place and finally say, you have no right to forbid me. I'm going to talk about it. And then see where things go. Because it wasn't just that. The, uh, the attorney general also forbid the minister of the police from giving any orders to the police on how to deal with the protests against the judicial reform. And you're thinking, what, what in what world are we living? And, and the, the ironic thing about this is you might have a case if you said, you want to know something? The law actually gives the attorney general this power. They're like, right. okay, so we have to deal with the law. But no. There is no law that defines the power of the attorney general. It's supposed to be an attorney general that, that in a sense, uh, advises the government on legal issues. Right. There is no law that gives the attorney general that power, but the justice system with the Supreme Court for decades has allowed, it's, it's them having the power over, yeah. over the state That's of Israel, over elected officials. So we, uh, we constantly get situations where the people vote, right? That's democracy, right. The, right. the will of the people, the voice of the people. And yet there is this deep state, which includes, unfortunately, the justice system, and I know there are wonderful people in the justice system, justice system, including a friend of mine who he has to hide, 
hide his conservative uh, ideology in order to maintain his to maintain his status in the justices. Wow! And guess what? He enough people know who he really is within the system that he has never been promoted to judge, even though he is respected for his unbelievable legal brilliance. So he mm. recently, finally retired and now he's a private lawyer doing great for himself but for years i was in talks with him and at every step of the way he was telling i'm hiding because now i'm up for this the, this committee to be to, to to be approved for this judge and to be this judge and he was always knocked down because of those in the system who were the progressive left who did not want those of his ideological conservative jewish bent in the system as yep. judges and that's our reality the voice of the people is overtaken by a deep state who believe they have every right to pursue their agenda against the voice of the people. And we saw that, and we saw that with the Russian hoax right after Trump. You know, the Peter Strzoks of the world that that that, that purposely, you know, kept things from 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 being disclosed or discovered and perpetuated uh, a falsehood uh, throughout the whole investigation. I mean, this was a very serious, um, egregious, egregious event that that opened up the American people's eyes to a deep state and and unfortunately you know I don't know how Congress regains it I mean we're fortunate we have a constitution that limits you know the powers of each agency or agencies through judicial review and we have a good Supreme Court and and maybe that's our only or last best hope because I don't see legislation coming forth in the United States that will rescind retract or otherwise restrict the powers that we've ceded to the administrative right. agency, which is the source of our deep state. Right, and here's, a, I'm going to give a, 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 I hope you agree with me, a frustration level of elected officials. Because here here in Israel, I'm giving you some some examples. America, you just had the Durham report, right? Yeah. Where you see the vast amount of, of treasonous and illegal activities done by officials within the FBI, the, and covered the up. CIA, all covered up, right? now. He, but here's the point I want, and you can get to that in a second. When an elected official is elected, he's promising A, B, and C to his constituents, right? Oh, I Now, guess. you promise X. You try to push X. The deep state stops you from pursuing X. Who pays the price at the voter at the ballot box? Yeah. The elected official, because the voters don't know the deep state stops you. And go try explaining to the voters, no, 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 I really tried, but it was the regulatory um, offices that stopped me. And then you get back. Well, make the changes to the regulatory office, right? So in the end, the one who pays the price for, for, for policies promised not being pushed forward and approved and gone forward are the elected officials who are true to the cause, yep. whereas the people in the deep state and those, again, the cover-ups within the FBI, the State Department, oh, yeah. the CIA, the EPA, they, all the agencies—they pay no—they pay no price for their illegal activities. Because the and turnover same thing here in Israel, we have a turnover. We have an election every two years, and 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 they know things are going to change. Their budgets, and the other thing is, is that their budgets—if they even try to be efficient—they will be—they will be penalized for that. Because if they can't—if they can operate with less funds, then they'll be appropriated less funds. So you always have to ask more funds, and you better spend everything, otherwise you're not going to get what you had last time. It is an amazing, chaotic system that we have allowed to perpetuate itself through, the, again, the ceding of congressional authority to these administrative agencies. So, so let me ask you, and I'll put, put it on the table. One of the things that I've been talking about for years, I mean, uh, ever since Trump came to power, put things in perspective, is that he seemed to me, with all the challenges, the only one who 
one called out the problem of true. the deep state true. as a president for sure and therefore one of the only one who seems to me to have ha then have the ability the persona and the ability to take on and make changes to the deep state and his, and his language is always he wanted to drain the swamp which is in a sense trying yeah. to drain drain the deep state trump's not in power now okay don't know if he's going to come back or not what is your take on how how the American people can drain the swamp to really get their voices not just heard at the ballot box, but followed through on in Washington and overcoming this 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 swamp in Washington? This is this is the topic of a whole nother video because it it is very. Uh, comprehensive what we need to do in America because it is a generational change in order to engage more people, more citizens in the political process. You know, we have uh, uh, we're declining in those people who, who go out and vote anymore. Uh, we've declined in party affiliations, and our number one fastest growing registration in the United States is non party affiliate because they've just decided they don't want to put up with the political parties in the United States. Uh, unfortunately, in order to effectuate this change, we have to change the way we look at electing officials. We have to look at the fact that we as the electorate are essentially the consumers. The same way a consumer, every time, like what Bud Light's going through right now. Bud Light's lost 29% of their business over the last several months because of the Dylan thing they did with the Bud Light cans. The consumers spoke and man, did it have an impact. If the consumers, if the electorate gets together and speaks, we make the difference. But as an elected official, I can tell you, the fewer people that vote, the better off I am, because I know, by voter registration history, who votes, how often they vote, and what are the results by the, by the precinct they vote in. So I can tailor my message that way, which usually is more of an extreme message, because I know that that super voter is probably either very conservative or very liberal, and they're probably 20 to 25 percent of the registered voters. So I just target them to get elected. But if I have to broaden my message... To, to transcend to the middle and to bring in more voters, then I have to change my, my message. And in changing my message, I have to address things such as the fact that we're, we're ceding so much authority. We change the way we elect our officials by more participation, which then affects how we, as elected officials, design and implement policy. Right now, we're placating to our basis, and it's dividing our nation, and it's unfortunate because take, for example, a history in America. You know, when James Madison ran for president in 1808, uh, James Monroe ran against him. Madison beat him. Madison looks at Monroe and says, you know what? You were my opponent, but you're good, and I'm going to make you my secretary of state. And he does. We have the Monroe Doctrine, which was uh, still practiced today in the United States as a foreign policy. Eight years later, James Monroe was elected president. Despite their differences, despite their political uh, battles, they realized that the greater good is the sanctity of a republic known as the United States of America, and they worked towards it. Today, we're either with me on this or you're against me on everything. Yeah. And that's where we as United States citizens have to stop and say, stop it. There's, there, there's no reason why, because my mom was a lifelong Democrat and my father a lifelong Republican, that I should have to just despise my mother because I'm a Republican. And today people are literally getting divorced over party differences. Yes. You can't. I went to, after 2016 election of Trump, I went to my brother's house for Thanksgiving, as we always do, and all the family comes. 
30, 40 people, all different generations. My brother put on the door in a very professional sign, please refrain from having any political discussions at this family event. And just because he was concerned whether I'd come through the front door or not, he put it on his back door too. <laughs> now here's my brother who's very conservative like I am, but was so afraid that we're going to become a divisive family over Thanksgiving because of political... And I'm thinking, my gosh, if I can't have a controversial political discussion with my own family members, what hope is there for my country? And that's where we have to learn how to take back America and, and, and change the culture on how we address controversial topics because that has been the saving grace of the American former government. And it's right now not working. And the deep state leads to that, accelerates that, perpetuates that. But, but, but I still do not understand. <clears throat> how, would, how would that train the swamp? Well, you get better people. Look, if we, if we had... You know how we had the wave in 2010 where we had 80 new elected members of Congress. Repeal and replace was our mantra. We, we, we did that. If we, you know, if we had a mantra that said, you know, eliminate the deep state and we had a plan in place that says the way we'll do that is we'll do congressional reforms that re regain our authority from these administrative agencies and have people sign on to this and have constituents demand it, you can assess whether they did it or not in the next election. And, and one of the things that disappointed me in my eight years in Congress was that we, as Republicans, and to use a football, an American football term, we played a prevent defense. We were not assertive in a, on the offensive in making the changes. Give President Obama a great deal of credit for what he did in health care, for what he did in financial reforms. I mean, he almost did climate change reforms that, that, that would have probably bankrupt our industry. But he did it. He put his right. majority Give him credit is. for succeeding in doing what yes, he wanted to do. I, Even if we disagree with it, but I he disagree succeeded. with it wholeheartedly. Right. But he put his majority at risk to accomplish. We haven't done that as Republicans. We haven't put our majority at risk, and the American people told us that when they when they eliminated the majority for Republicans in, in 2018, uh, and when they, they, they did not give them the red wave they thought they would have in 2020 um, or 2022. Um, I think that... that, that the, the, the parties themselves have to adopt serious policy mandates that say we are going to put our majority at risk to accomplish this if you give us the majority. So, do you mind if I push back a little? Push back and clarify. Because one of the things, and again, I mentioned this to you yesterday, the positive I see in all this is as more and more of this, here we're having a talk about deep state. Like, Two three years ago, everyone would be laughing. Yeah. Well, now people now more people are attuned to realizing, okay, maybe there is something to this, right? right? So there's an ex, there's an exposure process taking place, and I'm talking about both in America and in Israel. And to that I see as positive, because in order for us to get out of this, I mean, I go, go by G.I. Joe, I grew up in the 80s, right? Yeah. Knowing is half the problem, right? That's how we ended every show. Knowing is half the problem. So first we have to know the problem, and knowing and internalizing, okay, there is this deep state, you can't ignore it, right. they're part of the problem, okay, now we can go to the solution stage, right? So it's getting enough po enough of the public understanding to well, then have the, the public awareness. support. Raise the awareness, right, yes. To have the public support. At the same time, and now I'm going to switch to America, and this is where, I'm, where I want to hear your thoughts. At the same time, what I'm hearing, as people are learning about this deep state, they're also learning about how many, well, they're learning or jumping to conclusions about how many of the elected officials that they elected, whether at the state level or the federal level, actively partner and help the, the deep state and their yeah. agenda 
Uh, and do not even they say one thing at the border in order to get elected, but they're not pushing back or calling it out, and in a sense working together. For instance, today everyone is like, why isn't anyone calling out for there to be uh, indictments after this Durham report? It, like, it's not being done, and so a lot of elected, a lot of uh, voters are saying, wait, they're losing faith. With, within the system and any potential elected official. Because, like, no, I put my trust in you, and then you get to Washington or you get to the capital city of your state, and you're just work, walking hand in hand with the obstacle that we can't make the necessary changes until that's taken down. So, hence, my pushback is even if we go in that direction, are there enough people? To wake up and realize, no, don't, don't lose faith in the system or in every potential elected official, even though reality is giving them the picture like, but too many of them are working together with the deep state instead of, instead of against. Well, you raise a lot of issues there, because I can tell you, as a legislator in the state of Florida, uh, I saw uh, a staff-driven process because of term limits. You know, term, term limits, you're only in for eight years, and I supported term limits back in the 90s, and, and now I kind of regret that we, we stopped at eight years. Term limits, if you're going to have it, should be no less than 12 years, because it gives you a chance to learn, to, to be able to be effective, and not be focusing solely on leadership titles. Instead, focus on policy uh, programs that you can spend 12 years doing instead of eight years trying to become the speaker or the majority leader or chairman of this committee. And what happens in the term limits is that you have the staff running things. You know, I, I remember having I chaired a, 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 an insurance committee and I did all these reviews and I had a, a model bill and we passed it out of committee. Uh, next thing I know, in the next committee stop, they've, the, 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 the staff has, had stripped it with, a, with an amendment, the entire bill. You know, and wh where did this come from? Why, didn't, why wasn't I in on, involved in this? So, yes, it does do that at the state level. In the federal level, one of the things about being a member of Congress for many people is that it's very intoxicating. Hmm. Before you got there, you didn't have the title. Before you got there, your jokes weren't funny. Before you got there, people didn't return your calls. Now that you're there, by golly, we want you to come over here. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. You know, don't worry about it. We'll take this. We'll give you the resources. We'll help you. Let me show you what we got going on here. And suddenly you're saying, wow, 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 wow. Well, if I can just, you know what? I think I'm going to let the uh, administrative agency that deals with this subject matter handle that. And I can tell my constituents that this is in the authority of the EPA, and they're looking into whether we have radon exposure in our constituency, and I have full faith in them that they're going to do the right job. If they don't, I'll be on them. Instead of saying, wait a second, why, why is the EPA coming to me and, and all of a sudden courting me to tell me that everything's okay? And I had actually had situations like that when I was in Congress where I would have agencies come to me it, it to somewhat preempt me. And it, 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 a lot of it depends, and this is, it depends on staff. My personal staff uh, that I had in Congress that were under my direction, that they served at my pleasure so I could hire and fire them at will. That's good. They also are career, but they also know that, and in my case, my staff, if they did well with me, they would do well elsewhere. And, and that was a good buffer for me. That was a good uh, investigative uh, uh, group that I had, that were my personal staff. But we had to, to understand that it is almost us versus them. And, and, it's, and when you're in, Wait, when you're the in Congress... Who's the us versus them? Uh, the us is the elected, the them is the administrative, the regulatory environment. <laughs> Some of them serve good purposes. But one thing about the American form of government, that unfortunately when you have 
ceded so much authority to the regulatory agencies is they believe that one size will fit all. And it doesn't work that way. You have to take things by, you know, how we resolve something in New York is going to be different than how we resolve it in, in Florida, whether it be education, whether it be environmental. You know, and so that's what's so good about elected government is that we take care of those that put us there. We represent our interests instead of saying, well, you know, the EPA is going to just do this blanket rule that's going to have affect everybody across the United States. You know, the waters of the world where they were going to regulate retention ponds. Come on. What, what, what are we talking about here? Why, you know, it's just absurd. You can't build or you can't get near. You've got to do this because it's a retention pond. Well, wait a second. You know, we're Florida. We're low level. We have to have retention pond. We, gotta be able, we don't want to go through the federal government in order to handle our irrigation and, 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 and our, our, our water issues. But that's basically what these regulatory agencies are, are doing. It's very difficult as a new member of Congress to understand exactly what roles these agencies play that further either my interests and, and who, it's difficult. But the other thing, and you hit upon this, Avi, is that the trust in government is eroded dramatically, which as a result leads to the apathy that we're experiencing in America that empowers these deep staters, if you will, even more. Right. Because right. N nobody trusts anybody, so they're not going to engage. Right. And those that are already there like that because right. they're going to perpetuate themselves. Right. And you've touched upon this, but I just want to bring it up because I think it was so powerful when, when, when you said this to me yesterday. You actually used the word. You Sometimes you felt you were an elected official. You were a congressman, and yet you felt powerless. Oh, many times. And, and I would raise this in our conferences, both under John Boehner and both under Paul Ryan, uh, whether it be immigration, whether it be transportation, and I would stand up and I'd say, why aren't we doing this? And they would say to me, Dennis, we're going to do it. You'll get your fight. Don't worry. We never had our fights. We never had our fights on immigration. We never had our fights on transportation. We never had our fights on health care. We always capitulated. And usually it's because, you know, it was, you know the, 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 they would say, oh, we can't do this because, well, we just, the Senate's going to run us. They're going to jam us. We're going to... And I would go back home and I would tell my constituents that I'm going to do this. I've filed legislation on everything from health care reform, tax reform, immigration reform, everything, knowing it would go nowhere. But at least I could justify back home to my constituents because I'm up every two years that maybe I'm not being I'm listened trying. to. I'm trying. And I, and I think that's a fault of the system that we have today is that we're not empowering the rank and file members of Congress to show the people back home that they can get things done. No matter how small the project, you've got to let them get something done. And, you know, there's the, when we did away with earmarks in the House, I think that was a terrible thing. Earmarks are a, a minuscule fraction of a fraction of the budget. But what it allowed us to do was to uh, direct federal funds to our district for a particular purpose. If a bridge went out, whatever, we could do that. And and the, the leadership could, could incentivize you to do things through earmarks. Uh, and the only thing I thought about earmarks that we should change is that we need to make sure they're transparent and for a, a specific uh, federal uh, priority. And if we made them transparent and we made them for that, then, then we could allow members of Congress to come back home and say, see, I'm getting things done. Have faith in me. And then they say, you know, in Congress that everybody hates Congress, but they love their congressmen. So those are the reasons why. Today, I feel for my former colleagues that are still there 
because they can't get things done. And we're looking at the border. We're looking at, just look at our labor market in the United States. It's awful. But yet we have so many people that want to come into our state, into our nation, to do work, to do these jobs that nobody else will do. But we are, we, we've, we've totally destroyed our immigration system. And, and that's unfortunate. And it's because of Congress not acting, and Congress isn't acting because of the administrative agencies telling them they can't do it this way or they shouldn't do it this way, we'll handle it. And, and you know, there's no institutional knowledge with members of Congress. There is a tremendous amount of institutional knowledge with the administrative agencies because they are career. Do you mind if I ask you, if, if I mention and ask you um, how you said you had the bug You've been out for four years now? Four years. Four years out of, out of D.C., but you just recently had the bug to possibly return, and oh, you started, I did. I, I, but then you decided against it. Can I ask you to go into yeah, that? Yeah, what had happened was we'd picked up, uh, a, a, we should have picked up two congressional seats in Florida, uh, but there was an issue with the Census Department. Um, <laughs> so we only picked up one seat, and the legislature was putting it, uh, the new seat, in about 45% of my old district. There would be an open seat. And I had some people come and talk to me about it, and I, I'm enjoying my, my time and my work I'm doing at the university, and I said, you know what, I could do this. And now I know better. I'm going to go back and make the changes. And I talked to my wife about it, and she was conciliatory. Not as motivated as I had hoped, but she was conciliatory because she's very supportive. And uh, we announced, we did a couple of fundraisers, jumped in, spent some time doing some um, campaigning, realized that the whole field had changed. Uh, I, I didn't keep PAC money, okay? I, my camp, I, when I got out of Congress, I gave my money to, to, to nonprofits and, and, and other interests, nothing personal. I didn't have, I had to start from scratch again. I had state elected officials who had PACs, you know, million dollar PACs and whatnot. They were gonna run in the race and, and that was gonna run their, their campaigns. And I, I looked at, there was a crowded field of seven and I said, you know, I said, is this something I want to do? I sat down with a dear friend of mine, a dear friend of mine. He said, Dennis, what would you do differently that you didn't do before? And I said, you know, Dean, I said, uh, you're probably right. I said, uh, do you really want to go back and do this? And I said, no, I realized why I got out. And, and after about a month on the campaign trail, I talked to my wife and she said, thank you. She says, I wasn't ready to go back and I didn't think that it was something that you ought to do. And it was cathartic. I returned to the campaign funds that I had uh, raised during that period of time, and I went back and, into the university system and, and have never looked back or regretted it. I have a great deal of respect for the sanctity of the, um, the, the body of Congress. I am active in the former members of Congress. I serve on their board. I'm vice president of that organization. We do a lot of educational work in colleges, uh, mainly in civics, mainly in promoting bipartisan cooperation, and I think that's where my services are probably best right now. Um, I've got the experience, I've got the, uh, the, 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 the knowledge of seeing the system work, and I have the motivation to do what I think is necessary to make sure that we can correct it from the outside instead of from the, in, the inside. Yeah, no, I thought it, that's very enlightening for people to hear that, that, that thought process that you've personally gone through. And you want to give people context, where is the fulfillment in the university system that, that you're working at? And again, for people to understand, he's not working at a normal, you're, you're not working at Yale or Stanford or Harvard, no, right? No, but we are, I am at the fastest, one of the fastest growing private liberal arts colleges in the United States. We have 10,000 enrollments, 6,000 on campus at Southeastern University in Lake we have <coughs> approximately 4,000 that are at over 200 affiliates throughout the, 
the country. It's a Christian university, but since I've been there, we started the American Center for Political Leadership. We've collaborated with other universities because they have the resources, the research facilities, to do such things as create uh, uh, research-based civics curriculum. We use primary source materials, not a textbook. So my students are reading the, the, the actual speech that Chief Powhatan gave to John Smith uh, in Jamestown and, and basically saying, you know, I could take you out. I could take out all you settlers, but I seek peace, and I want you to know that we can live together. What happens is, is that all the students have all these primary source materials. They're assigned certain ones to read depending on the period of time we're discussing, and then they have to answer certain questions in their mind, or they can write them down. They come into class. They're in three groups, and each group, the, 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 the students that make up the group, read different primary sources. And so then they have to discuss what they read and what they believe and this, that. And then we go back into the larger class, and I say, okay, uh, John, what did Betty think about this? Tell me what her opinion was. So it forces them to have to not only understand what was going on at that period of time in American history and politically, but they also have to empathetically listen to understand why the other person thinks this way, and then they tell the class. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, been, it's being taught and many of the universities now in Minnesota. It's called Third Way Civics in Ball State. This was developed in a cooperation that we had with Ball State in Minnesota Humanities Council. It's a required course now at Southeastern. We just developed a one-of-a-kind civic navigator uh, survey, which is kind of like a Myers-Briggs test for people to determine their civic propensity for being engaged. Uh, we had it, it spent two years. We collaborated with University of Maryland, University of um, uh, Minnesota on this one as well. And uh, it's now been a web-based program where a, a person can take it and see where they are in a category against 5,000 people that have taken this in, in determining whether they're, they're going to be considered an active person, an apathetic person, or whatnot. And then what do we use with this data? We can build curriculum with it. We can assess the effectiveness of curricula that we're doing. Private sector can use it. You know, We have this corporate social responsibility fad going on in America. Corporations can say, hey, our employees took this. Uh, civic Navigator, and our employees are, you know, predominantly all civic engaged. They want to make better communities, things of that nature. So we're working in that direction. We're working on local programs, uh, speech contests, community awareness of, of, of recognizing statesmen leaders at the early level and promoting them. We want to encourage students to get involved in the political process, to get involved in their communities. We've developed a program, and I'm, I know I'm rambling here, but we've developed a program with the uh, local chamber of commerce where we take the four universities that are in our community and we put certain students through an immersion of a leadership program in the community. So they learn about the community's health care program, the, 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 the government process, the education process, the business community, and they learn so because we want to give them the experiential understanding that community involvement is very important and hopefully that they will become the community leaders that we want to see to make things better. So for me, it's been a blank canvas that in four years has it's allowed me excitement. to do this. It, it's very exciting. I, 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 and I've seen, and what I love is to watch my students as they graduate and go on and come back and tell me what they're doing. And it's, that is the fulfillment that I was missing in Congress. And as you mentioned before, you said it is a Christian university. Can I assume that you, this university has been able to stop the, the wokeness that has taken over so many of the other uh, university institutions around America? Well, they have me, Israel? so that should be a good indication that we have. <laughs> <laughs> good answer. All right, I can't, I can't finish without 
touching upon your, your firm uh, devotion and connection to the Jewish state of Israel. Again, oh. I know that when you were an elected <laughs> official in Congress, hosted you in, here in Israel, visited you in, 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 in Congress in Washington, D.C., and here you're visiting with your wife to enjoy the land of Israel as a civilian. Why is Israel so important to you, both in your personal life and then as an elected official that you stood up as a, as a proud partner of ours on, on the Hill? This was one of the benefits of my time in Congress, is because of my trip here first with AIPAC. And then uh, when, when I started doing my research and reading very, various materials, I just finished a book by Daniel Gordas on the Promise of Israel that I thought was very fascinating. And it confirms my belief that <coughs> the state of Israel not only has its right to exist, but should be an example for all other nations to realize how you can overcome. And, and you can do it even with secular you know, participation, uh, even though that, 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 that you are a nation state and a Jewish nation state. Um, I feel a strong attachment to what's happened here. You know, I've, I've, read, I've read several books about Israel. You know, the startup, the, the startup nation, I thought was one of the most fascinating ones. And I saw where the economic development, this nation has become the economic engine of the Middle East and beyond. That, that if anything were to happen to Israel economically, all the Arab states and other non-Arab states would suffer dramatically <laughs> because of what you're able to produce, predominantly in technology. I mean, I look at what agricultural developments you've made. Now I look at your wine industry and think, wow, <laughs> this is really coming alive. Uh, and militarily, you've taught us a lot. You know, that cooperative relationship between the United States and Israel has furthered the advancement of freedom throughout the world by way of strong defense. Not strong offense, not putting troops on the border, but being able to deter troops on our borders or your borders with strong defense systems. And, and when I look at what Israel has done, I'm always fascinated. Plus, and I'll tell you this, was the first time that I've witnessed this. Every time I've been, I've been to Israel seven times, <coughs> predominantly through seeing it through the window of a van or a bus. This time I rented a car. And we've driven all over. And I didn't realize how green, how lush this country is. And that is an amazing testament to the Israeli people who have embraced what had been a desert and turned it into just an absolutely beautiful promised land. Now, and you, you mentioned you came here with APAC. You also came here with, the, with Ruth and Sarah. Yes. The Yes Israel Project that I... I'm I was here for the opening them. of the embassy. And, we have and the only, all right. So in, ter in terms of trips and, and the picture and understanding that congressmen have when coming to Israel on these various trips, what would you say is the, is the differentiating factor coming with Ruth and Sarah and the S. Israel Project versus what congressmen experience coming on APAC or any of the others? Coming with APAC is like coming with the Chamber of Commerce. They show you the good things. Coming with Ruthie showed us not only the good things, but we got granular into some of the... We, we, we visited installations. We visited uh, an a, a Iron Dome installation. We visited an installation where, where we have helped make, through investment of U.S. dollars, things better in Israel through your technology. We, we, we visited you know, tunnel um, um, defensive measures. We visited Arabs. We talked to... We go into you know, into settlements and talk to the, 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 the Palestinians that are there and, and, and privately and quietly we learn from them how important it is that a strong Israel be there to protect them as well. And, you know, so it's, it, the good thing about Ruthie and Sarah's program for me was that it took you behind the headlines. 
and made you question the headlines mm. and realize that this is an absolutely incredible journey that the Israelis have been on since 1948. And, and you get all the sides of it. APAC's a wonderful trip. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it is a, it is a Chamber of Commerce trip. But when you want to go behind the curtain and see how things are really going here and talk to people of diverse opinions about Israel, including the Arabs, that's that opportunity that we received through Ruthie and Sarah. Amazing. And I was blessed to, to meet... Uh, that's right. We did. Yes, right, we had quite a... <laughs> we're working with, with Ruth and Sarah. And we're bringing three congressmen next week, next week please guide her. Um, so to end, I've taken a lot of your time. It's your last day here. I want, I want you to go back and enjoy uh, your wife and your, your last few so, hours in yes. Jerusalem. So just to circle back to the, the, the topic we started with, the deep state of Israel and America, what positive words of encouragement can you give all of us, citizens of America, citizens of Israel, on, on, on moving forward, um, focused on that issue? Well, you know, I'm I'm a very positive person anyway, despite what what others may think. I mean, I, I'm I'm a I'm a positive uh, realist um, in in that sense. But I believe that the, one of the things that has been to our benefit as Americans and as Israelis is our development of strong relations. And you know, you can't really um, become better unless you learn more about others. And the only way you actually do that is by building relationships. One of the reasons I'm glad I came here is because my affiliation with Ariel University and trying to get students to work together in programs. And that builds a network of, of, of relationships that these students will have throughout their careers when they know that somebody in the United States is doing something that, with them and then somebody in Israel and they've met each other 20 years ago and they work together and they become friends and they have this exchange. I am very very positive about the future of this of, of this 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 country, America, and quite frankly, the world. You know, politically, I'm very, very, and that's concerned, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. But, you know, the promise of God has been that if we focus on Him, the little things will take care of themselves. And and I think I'm living proof of that in my life. So that helps me be very positive. And if I can make that contagious, I will work to do that. Amen. I like to call. It's very interesting. You said that uh, about yourself. I call myself an a re, an optimistic realist or a realistic optimist. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> I'm with that's you. How, like uh, that's how I term myself. hundred percent. And it's about. And again, and I try to use my my platform and my voice to let people get behind the curtains and understand yeah. what's really going on behind the headlines. But then giving them the the encouragement and the, the optimism, like uh, we're we're going to get through this, folks. And oh, we will. Again, it's all connected to. God. It's Amen. all connected to our, to, our, to our belief system and, and strengthening our faith. Congress, uh, former Congressman Dennis Ross, it yes, is Dennis. such a pleasure. Thanks, Javi. Always Thank a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Folks, I hope you enjoyed today's special Pulse of Israel with Dennis Ross. Please share this with anyone you feel that this can help them further deepen their understanding of reality and be encouraged of the future and the steps and the advice that Dennis gave us in terms of getting more engaged for the benefit of us all in the political system. Again, the benefit, never lose hope, ne strengthen your faith. We're, we have amazing times ahead of us. Yeah. Signing off for another episode of the Pulse of Israel here in our eternal and ancestral homeland, the land of Israel, the third Jewish commonwealth in our biblical, beautiful, ancestral, and indivisible capital of Jerusalem since King David's time. Shalom, everyone. Thanks for watching. Pulse of Israel, frontline videos from the Holy Land. Support our work by donating today.